0: episode of Lipstick Coffee Jesus. I'm Vanity and I'm Sean, and we're here back in the DMV on this cold fall evening. Perhaps you can hear the fire in the background. We're just here sipping on some of our tea, having a conversation. And my cup tonight is tall, dark, and handsome. Sean, what are you drinking? I'm drinking masala chai tonight. And just in case you're wondering, these teas will be available for purchase along with our signature coffees on Black Friday. We urge you to go to our Instagram or our Facebook page just to stay up with us. The links will be provided after this episode, and we're just really excited to not only have have you hear the conversations, but to share another passion with you, which is our coffees and our teas. So tonight,
1: we are really excited and so glad that you were able to join us. Um, today's topic will be on social action and social community issues. Um, tonight, we're going to go into um, a conversation about Byron Allen, and we'll explain a little bit more. If you, For those who do not know who he is, we'll talk a little bit more about him. And then also, we'll be speaking about Rodney Reed. Rodney Reed is an inmate who is currently on death row, and he is scheduled to be executed next week. Um, just so everyone is aware, as a disclaimer, the views and opinions that are occurring on this show tonight are simply our own our own opinions, no one else's opinions, and then also the same for our guests. With that, we're going to introduce our special guest that we have on tonight. Her name is Attorney Natasha D. Hudgens, and she hails from the 757 for those who are part of the DMV, and we are so glad to have her. Tash, are you there? I am.
2: Thank you all for having me.
1: Thank you for joining us. We're so so happy that you're here. So let's get into our topics for tonight. Van, what you want to start with? You want to start with Rodney Reed or Byron Allen?
0: We can save Rodney for the end. Let's start with Byron Allen. I know some people listening are probably thinking, why is this even important? Um, uh, for a supreme case, and why is it important that we highlight what's going on as it pertains to the black community? Um, for those who don't do not know, Byron Allen has a supreme a case that's going before the Supreme Court in this next term, talking about discrimination versus Comcast. He his he's claims that Comcast deliberately refused to distribute his channels while giving a platform for other lesser known channels that happen, just so happen to be um, owned or operated by white owners. So um, Attorney Hudgens, can you give us a little more from a legal perspective, can you kind of talk about the implications of this case? I know, like I said, some people might not understand the importance of this case going before the Supreme Court, but can you kind of give an overall view of the legal implications and wh- how that would affect us as a community um, depending on the ruling?
2: Yes, absolutely. So the larger picture here ultimately comes down to civil rights and it comes down to our very first civil rights act <laughs> that actually came into play in the late 1800s. And what it does it is allows. Or, um, or help provide protections, rather, for Black people and people of color, um, but especially Black people, because this is right after slavery, so I just kind of want to throw that in there for, the, for context, um, to have fair dealings and contracts and in business. And so it's not as expansive as some of our newer Civil Rights Act, but ultimately, the argument here is, you know, Comcast and they want to, and um, there's another media company involved as well, they want to limit that test to be, the discrimination has to be, solely based on race, whereas the Ninth Circuit Court of Appeals has said it's a factor, it's not 100%. And so essentially they're trying to eliminate um, this civil rights law. Um, so a lot is at stake, actually, and I would hope people will uh, get even more engaged because, you know, this is actually huge for us huge for um, black people and any person of color. This is a huge, huge um, case because the Supreme Court is not going to rehear all the arguments for everything in
1: terms of the actual Comcast Allen dispute, but they are going to address the Civil Rights Act. So. I so I've been doing a lot of reading on this particular case um more specifically because of the real estate implications. So as you know, my husband is a real estate agent and then, you know, of course I help him along with his business. And I was thinking about it today where, you know, it could this happen in the housing sector. Like even though this is media and communications, could this potentially touch um those in the housing sector? Like for example, if someone um, is looking for an apartment since an apartment is a contract um, would someone be able to discriminate based on race even though we have laws stating otherwise it, could that potentially be an implication of this?
2: Um, it could certainly have some effect although there are still some um, housing discrimination laws that are more specific when it comes to housing and real estate but because in the last few years, um, there has been some chipping away of even the Civil Rights Act of 1964 and things of that nature, um, we do have to be careful to make sure that we are not going backwards. We need to be imploring our representatives, our you know, congressional members, because if we aren't careful, um, it, it really can have a more serious impact if we are not careful because this case could then ultimately affect other civil rights cases and other civil rights law.
0: Now, you just mentioned, you've touched on it briefly about um, our representatives and the government. I know a lot of times people kind of, they look at the bigger like presidential elections and some of the larger races, but can you kind of touch on how important it is from uh, on a local level about voting and who we vote in as representatives because ultimately those are the people making laws that affect us on a day-to-day basis?
2: Absolutely, and I 100% agree with um, the end portion of your statement because you're you're local down to your city or county, and then your state representative Those are the people who are really working on your day-to-day. They appropriate state funding, um, which then goes toward, you know, housing and employment and other um, vital areas for, you know, our communities. But they are the ones who have the most direct impact and, frankly, when we engage in the larger presidential elections and then we disengage when it comes to the lower elections, we do ourselves a disservice because they kind of work together. And so, um, and what I mean when I say they work together is if you are not voting in your state and local elections, And you have a representative who is not representing your needs or desires, then and then if you are not voting for your congressional members, then you don't have even if you vote for the president, you don't have the right people in place, then or you may not have the right people in place depending on how the election goes, if you're not voting to support the president and, you know, things that he, may, he or she may have on their agenda. And the same, you know, in the state, if you vote in just the governor's race, let's say, for example, but then you fail to vote for your local legislator, you're doing yourself a disservice because the three branches of government work together and you need your local members to support whoever that top person is and so it's the same when it comes to local officials and your governor um because you need both to execute new laws to bring change like real change when it comes to legislation and the same on the congressional and presidential level you need both in order to affect the change that you're seeking. and that goes for anyone in any community you need both to
1: work together. And we definitely see that, uh, how it comes into play, how it goes from local all the way up to the top. I mean, quite honestly, as you're aware, that's how we have the Supreme Court justices that we have in place right now. Um, As, you know, as I hope our listeners are aware, the president is the one who's able to um, make those nominations. And of course, um, our government either qualifies them, allows them, allows them to come in, or they don't. And so that's kind of where we are. And um, Tasha, we, you do know that we, are, we have a more conservative um, Supreme Court of the United States right now. And um, because they are conservative, what are you thinking as far as what could potentially happen with this ruling?
2: Well, it could mean a lot of things for this case. But before I actually answer your question... I do want to touch on the fact that most federal judges, uh, Article 3 judges, when I say Article 3, I'm referring to the Constitution of the United States, which means they are lifetime appointments. And right now, currently, this administration has had the power to put in over over 150, I believe they're at 158 judges on federal court who have lifetime appointments. It just sort of goes back to our last point that, you know, all of the elections and everything are important. And when we're talking about the courts, it's important that we watch our courts, our federal courts as a whole, but also, of course, the Supreme Court. So now getting to your question about the implications of this specific case, I do believe it could have some implications. Um, However, one great thing about the court, regardless of how conservative or liberal it may seem, is that courts rely heavily on precedent. And while there can be a change of rules, and of course, if the Supreme Court deems this case important enough to add it to its docket, you know, there are some serious risks here because we will have a big problem If the court finds that those challenging discrimination have to prove that the discrimination was 100 percent based on race. Right. Because then it would basically make it impossible to actually prove that that standard would be raised significantly and that would by virtue eliminate all of the protections of this act. So that's the real implication here. It is a possibility, but I'm liking to think that it won't go that far. Um, I can only hope. And we also see sometimes with some of the justices that conservative or liberal, sometimes you think you may know the way that they're going to cast their vote in their ruling only to find later that they may actually surprise you so we will we will just have to see how this comes out but i do think there is some reason to be concerned but i'm not overly concerned that they are just going to do away that the supreme court would
0: just do away with the protections that now, what would you say to the person who is kind of disenfranchised at this point? They've become a little bit apathetic because they say there's all these biases. Of course, you know, being that we are African American and we've we've experienced some of those either discriminations or people's bias against us. What would you say to the person who is kind of just disconnected from this whole process simply because they don't think they have a voice
2: well i would say you know i would hope to encourage them in the way of letting them know they do have a voice and you know even outside of voting you know some prefer um, activism in the form of marches and rallies some prefer groundwork um Ground roots level work with your congressional persons and things of that nature. Um, and, but I just really want to remind people that they do have a voice. And one of the things that I have learned, you know, being in D.C., I used to intern and work with the um, D.C. Council for a little bit, and um, and then being around the Hill, you learn that the the issues and the things that a lot of representatives you know will pay closer attention to even if the if a lot of the views they're getting are not the same as their own so say you know if they're receiving a lot of feedback from constituents that they pay attention to because if you have people who are actually engaged in what you are doing then you know it forces them to pay attention because guess what? Every however many years for, you know, each office has a different number of years, but they have to be reelected. And at any time, they can be given the boot <laughs> in the next
1: election right. should someone come along who is
2: ready and willing and the people believe that they will hold their interest at heart. And so I would hope to employ people and really just, I guess, make people believe in that you do have a voice because you do and it's very important for us all to be engaged and elections are one way and it's certainly one I believe that is very important and I do understand that there are those who feel as though okay, well, they are not going to choose the lesser of two evils so they're not going to vote and While my opinion is different, I respect that opinion, um, but I would encourage them, even if that is your stance, to then get involved another way. Get involved by meeting with your um, legislative officials, your legislative officials, whether from the local all the way on up to your congressional person, you know, write letters on matters that matter to you, send letters, phone calls, all of those things, because most elected officials have some sort of system to track when people are calling or writing about issue-specific topics, and so when they know that constituents are paying attention and they care about certain topics, then it forces your official to actually pay attention to those topics. So I would say, remember, you do have a voice and that our elected officials are supposed to be advocates for us.
1: I definitely agree for those who have not elected in this, uh, actually voted in this past election, uh, which was Tuesday the 5th, I believe. For Virginia. Yes, for Virginia. I voted, my family voted. I voted. And I hope everyone else, um, when you have the opportunity to vote, because as Tasha said, it's so important. And you're right, Tasha, like you hear so often that, you know, people say, oh, I don't vote because my vote does not count. But I think, if you look past that and think about how many people stood in lines how many people were hosed how many people had dogs you know sicked on them and you know how many people died for our just our option to vote you know we have the option to vote and it's so easy for us but you know if you take yourself out of that take yourself out of the equation and think about how many people died and risked their lives were jailed just simply so these things that we are facing today mm-hmm. would not happen
2: absolutely and also if voting was not important there would not be so many efforts to take away people's rights to vote
1: you are so right, correct. We are still right. Having,
2: yeah we are still having attempts and you know different states different, you know, localities on, you know, state level and federal level that would bring more, that different franchises to vote versus allowing people to vote freely. And also in Virginia in particular, um, so the, this past election in November was the first election since um, the district lines were redrawn because the Supreme Court found Virginia's lines to be unconstitutional district lines to be unconstitutional.
1: No surprise but, there, but go ahead. From,
2: yes, absolutely. But but also to the point of it mattering, one district, not in this twenty nineteen election, but I believe it was twenty seventeen, I believe, but a very recent election in Virginia, the vote literally was tied and it literally came down to like basically essentially the toss of a coin, like pulling a name out of a hat. And literally, that is how the last election went for the Virginia Assembly. And in that particular district, because the votes were tied. And so it's like, if you don't think your vote matters, it really does. And there was a district recently where literally they had to draw names to decide who was going to win because it was not it was a tie
0: vote, like from the vote. And I definitely wanted to also emphasize, you know, a lot of times we do just focus on the voting, but having that advocacy in other areas. Okay. Let's say you don't like the candidates making that effort to go out and volunteer to still be in contact with the voted elected officials, finding those organizations who are advocates for those who don't may not have a voice or, trying to find a way to make sure other people are registered to vote or you're fighting against voter suppressions and things like that. I think that's a really good point because a lot of times we stop with the person I got wanted to be elected, didn't get elected. I don't have a voice. I'm just going to stop caring. But you made a really good point that if we are going to see effective change across the community and even in industry and business, that we really do need to look beyond just the vote because there's a lot of pieces that come together that affects what happens, which happens around us. So thank you for that.
2: Absolutely. Absolutely.
0: So ladies, I think that this is actually
1: a great segue for us to talk about the Rodney Reed case. So just to give our listeners background, if you have not seen the petitions, um, which there have been a lot of petitions going around for this Rodney Reed case. So Um, Just to explain a little bit more about what is happening, Rodney Reed, uh, back in 1996, I believe, um, was accused of killing a, a white woman in Texas, and he is currently on death row for that murder. However, there is a lot of evidence that has come out that may implicate the fact that this man is not guilty. He was taken on by the Innocence Project. And they believe so strongly that they have created this petition along with um, one of our social action. I don't want to use the word celebrities, but uh, one of our forerunners of social action, Sean King, um, he started a petition in addition to uh, celebrities out there. So even Rihanna and Kim Kardashian have taken this case on um in addition to that recently a letter um calling bus, uh, a letter written by senator Ted Cruz who is actually a republican in Texas and many of his constituents who are also republican have uh, signed this letter and have said that they believe that they should put a pause on this execution process, which is being, uh, the, the fate is actually in the hands of Governor Greg Abbott. Uh, just again, more background into this, back in the 1990s, Rodney Reed was accused of killing um, Stacy Stites. And I hope I'm pronouncing her, uh, her name correctly. Back in April 23rd in 1996, uh, she was found dead in her car. Um, and apparently they were saying that she was supposed to be at work. She didn't show up to work. After several hours and after several days, things came out as far as Rodney Reed. Essentially, they tried to make it seem as though this was some random killing, only to find out that she was actually having an affair with Rodney Reed. And then the husband who was a police officer uh, during that time knew about this affair. And once they found out that there was a physical evidence uh, which or physical DNA on her from Rodney Reed, he initially lied about it. And I don't know any man out there who has had an affair and was open and honest about it. So that to- that didn't surprise me that he did that, <laughs> but he lied about it And then it came out that he was sleeping with her and that the husband knew. Based on a lot of physical evidence and timelines or what have you, even though he had a relationship with her, it's looking like he did not lie about the fact that he killed her just based on her position, the time that she was in in the position in the car, pooling of blood and different things like that that forensic investigators will look at. And so, Tasha, we actually want to get your opinion on this case again.
2: You know, most of what's out there is a lot of what you provided in the background. And part of the sort of interesting thing about it to me is it actually resembles a lot of, well, let me say, based on the Innocence Project uh, research and some of what they have put out there because I personally wholeheartedly appreciate and believe in their work. And some of the, the characteristics of this case actually mimic or have some similarity to the Central Park Five, which is, you know, now in documentaries movie I think there's been at least like a movie and a documentary right. um, about it which were the five young um, black men who were wrongfully convicted of raping a woman in Central park some of that resemble here where you see you have forensic experts having to recap part of their um, story and things of that nature and it's difficult because uh, Reed has probably already, you know, petitioned regular appeal at first, which is why it's at the level that it's at now. Um, Those were probably not successful, but as you have more evidence um, that shows that the uh, the evidence that was brought during trial was either incorrect or... (laughs) just you know that there, there are many holes in it but as you see those things and you see so it raises the bar for the doubt right of how much you know this person really could have been innocent versus being guilty ultimately mm-hmm. you know I think there is high chance that he is actually innocent Um, and so I'm hoping that if nothing else Texas that the governor will halt the execution to at least then give the case it's, you know, fair chance to be heard again, to actually take into because the expert witnesses really the expert testimony is the part where I think they have something, where they have something that they can hang their hat and say, if this evidence was the evidence that was put on versus, you know, what's the experts are now
1: recanting. Okay, so now let's talk about the juries. The jury is an all or his jury was an all white jury. And my question to you is, if you're supposed to have a jury of your peers, and Rodney Reed is a black man, and he is with a jury of all white persons, how is that a jury of his peers? That sounds a little skewed to me. Can you uh, shed a little light on that?
2: Sure. And- and going back, we also have to remember that his trial was in the 90s, and while there, of course, have been some progress. You know, peers starts with locality, and you would see sort of what I would call a lopsided jury in a lot of cases, especially older um, cases, because we all know people have biases and personal beliefs and understandings that will play a role and how they decide on a case. A criminal case, the standard is, one, beyond a reasonable doubt. Two, they will give you instructions on each element of the crime that the prosecution is required to prove. But depending on how people look at things, they may, as a fact finder, the jury has the right to find the facts, and they may or may not Fully that each and every element. To get more specific back to the peers, back then especially, you would see this a lot where black and brown people specifically um, would often be tried by jury pools with people that did not look like them. And you'll see now, fast forward today, that may happen. Sometimes, but there has been a lot of push and a lot of effort by activist groups and attorneys, especially attorneys of color, to make sure that our juries are more fair, that they are mixed with a real uh, representative pool and not a group of people who seemingly all think and look the same. Because part of You have a jury, is actually the picking the jury process, right? So many people have gotten jury notices before. Most of the time, people kick me out on the jury. They won't let me be on the jury.
1: (laughs) (laughs) I've never done it either. I've never even gotten a call. So maybe that's not a bad thing. We'll see. So,
2: yeah, they won't, you know, it's like I tell them what I do, where I work, and they're like, nope, (laughs) we don't like you. But what happens is there's um, a process attorneys go through, and the judge is usually there where you ask potential jurors questions. The questions are geared toward find like, sort of getting insight about a person's bias or, you know, different aspects to try to make sure that they can hear the case fairly. And so, especially if there are any race, gender, lgbtq issues things of that nature then you will have at least one question that will you know go into play both sides have depending on how many people they call both sides get a certain number of people that they can strike for any reason both sides meaning prosecution and the defense attorney or if it's a civil matter then it will be you know plaintiff and defendant but they get to strike for any cause so it's like oh you wore this blue sweater i don't like the color blue I'm going to strike juror number 20 and, you know, any reason at all. And then there are some that you have to strike for cause, meaning, okay, this person explicitly said, you know, they don't like white people or they don't like black people. I don't believe that this juror can hear this case fairly. And so all of that happens in terms of picking a jury. So today I think we have, we're still not. 100 percent there but i do think that we are better but based on the general language of it being peers you often see in a lot of older cases people being tried by all white jurors and and also to note this is also kind of this actually relates back to like the voting and the civil rights because sometimes too if you are disenfranchised there are some states like Virginia where if you are convicted of a felony you then cannot vote and things after but that also includes your right to serve on a jury and it's more than Voting is important but it really encompasses like that right to vote is really connected to other civil rights that you have as a person. So I don't wanna like go on and on and on because I can go on and on and on. <laughs> <laughs> you know,
1: what I'm attorney can't right? <laughs> I can
2: go on and on and on so feel free to jump in and cut me at any time. But I um but I just wanna note that that, you know, so sometimes in some states like Texas in particular I am not versed on all of their civil rights law, but if you if it's another state, that's likely a lot like, you know, Virginia. If you then are convicted of a felony, and then that if that hinders your, if if then you cannot vote by that then. 99% chance you also cannot serve on a jury. So it also limits pool of people that can even serve on a jury, which also doesn't disservice
0: our community. Yeah, well, I didn't even I did not even know that at all. Now you mentioned reasonable doubt. Now, for the sake of perhaps some of our listeners don't have a legal background to really understand what that means, can you go into what it means to have a case that has evidence beyond a reasonable doubt? Because just considering some of the facts of this case, such as the only DNA that was linked to the victim is based on a consensual sexual relationship that was confirmed by multiple witnesses, or the fact that the truck that was supposedly broken into had no prints from Rodney Reed. Reed... Or the fact that, like we mentioned earlier, the murder weapon has not been tested for DNA. Can you just kind of go over what reasonable doubt means and then kind of compare that to this case? So people really understand that we're not we're not just talking about this because it's you know been sensationalized in the media. But really, this is an issue, a justice issue that due process has not been served for this person.
2: Yes, absolutely. Reasonable doubt. So, beyond a reasonable doubt is the standard for criminal cases. So, in this context, we are only talking about criminal cases. And what that means is that the evidence and the facts are supposed to be so in line, you can prove the defendant, the person on trial, is absolutely 100% guilty beyond a reasonable doubt. So, it's like, it is supposed to be such a high standard because the background of the the standard was on the basis of we would rather 10 men go free versus 10 guilty men go free versus having one innocent man in jail. However, <laughs> when you're talking about the United States, you also have to remember that a lot of Laws, even including some of the legal standard, was created while there was still slavery and um, things of that nature, where people, black people in particular, black and brown people, were looked at as property and not people. Time you weren't worried about them being on trial. You know, the standard is to be that there is no. Doubt in anybody's mind that the person on trial is actually guilty of the crime in which they are charged with crime or crimes within us that they are charged with. So that is supposed to be, and that is the standard, and that is supposed to be the basis for this case. I think what we also have to remember, what you know, people will have to understand, is that back his original trial Mr. Reed's original trial happened depending on there may not have been as many witnesses who attest to the consensual sexual relationship. Clearly they had some forensic evidence issues. I I do think it is a little it's dishonest at the least of the, you know, prosecutors and the prosecution team to not even test if you have a murder weapon. That's like 101 tested for the DNA <laughs> right, so, right.
0: There are some integrity issues. I believe
2: you know with the prosecution when you start from the original case but you know that is the stage where you really want to make sure things are correct because To be frank, it's much more difficult to get someone out on being innocent right. after they're in jail despite any fight any sort of wrongdoing or what have you on the side of the prosecution. And so you know it still ties into our conversation about elections because some places have elected you know top a- attorneys for so their state attorneys. So you want to make sure that these people are the right people and for the job because once you get on appeal it becomes a lot more difficult actually get out especially on a criminal case because the standard is to be beyond a reasonable doubt so because the standard is to be we know that this person is 100% guilty based on the facts and the evidence that has been presented to us as essentially what the jury is saying when they come back with a guilty verdict on a criminal matter. Based on what was shown at the time, I obviously was not there. So at the time of the trial for what was actually presented to the jury could have been enough to actually convict Mr. Reed. But now we have so many pieces of evidence, including some of the expert witnesses, the expert forensic scientists, which is a huge red flag to why I would hope the governor would do the right thing and at least halt his execution. Texas is actually known for their executions. They are right, correct. the state with the highest number of capital punishment. So they, they're not strangers to putting people to death. But, you know, we do have to be careful in our justice system about making sure that we're actually upholding the standard and making sure that both sides, that your prosecution and your defense attorneys are being held to a high standard to ensure that justice is served because the purpose is for justice to be served. And so, you know, I'm really here just believing that there were a lot of mistakes and maybe even intentionally mishandling of this case in terms of the prosecution team. And of course, you know, the prosecutor has made his statement to refute any evidence that is now showing that lends itself towards Mr. Reed's innocence. but there's never going to be a why won't it never? But more likely than not, you're not going to ever see the prosecutor come back and say, yeah, I was wrong. I knew about th- this particular evidence, and I decided not to, you know, go with it or whatever, because then they're also breaking ethical rules <laughs> for the bar, and so you're never going to see that. Even in the Central Park Five case, I know I sort of alluded to it earlier, you know, the prosecutor was basically like, well, I stand by what I did at the time, I did what I need to be right at the time, and so I'm just putting that out there as a note also just because you won't see, it's not peculiar for the prosecutor to take the stance that
1: he is taking. I know that the three of us, we could talk about this oh, all man. night long, just simply because of what it means for our people. I mean, and that's kind of why we chose the the two subjects that we did today, Byron Allen and Rodney Reed, because even though they're two different cases, it, they're both um, examples of like the, you know, what we have to go through as minorities, like, it, You know, it's just not going to be fair for us. But going back to Rodney Reed, the scenario where we see this evidence, things have happened now where the ability to test and science is way more advanced than it was back then, as you kind of alluded to. One, let's just briefly talk about what is taking so long. And of course, we can't necessarily go into the governor's head and, you know, quite possibly think about what he may be thinking. But he would not take any questions in regards to this case today. Knowing that, you know, what what goes on from here? You know, why does it take so long for the governor and the board to make a decision knowing that so much evidence has come out, you know, a little differently or not a little, but very differently from what it did back the, in that time, back in 1996. And then also, you know, going forward. I pray they don't take this man's life. I, let's say they do.
2: Um, unfortunately, you know, nobody can ever say why it takes so long. I mean, in general, you know, a lot of times in different government capacities, things take time. I'm sure the governor is trying to weigh, um, find out more about, you know, what evidence was actually put on at trial versus, you know, all of the um, items that have come forward today. Um I'm sure that he's also getting input from the um, parole board or whatever their stance may be, the prosecution, obviously, the defense team. So, you know, there are a lot of factors. I'm sure he may even also be looking at his constituents. How are they weighing in? Because, you know, this is still an elected position. So um, if he has a constituent base that is heavily swaying to one side or the other, You know it may play a factor into um, his decision now unfortunately if they do they mean texas if the execution proceeds i also hope that it's that it doesn't but if it does the best case scenario would be an exoneration after death for mr reed which of course after his death is no good to him
0: right Um, correct
2: but you know it can happen it has happened i know the innocence project has had some folks exonerated posthumously, and it's not i mean that is certainly not ideal i mean so you know i am hoping as well that you know the government the governor will halt the execution to at least give it a fair kick because they might need to do uh, i mean what i'm waiting for is to find out if they They, meaning um, the court, find that the evidence is high enough to make them remand the case back all the way to trial level, to basically, you know, retry again. It's so old that that may not happen, that that actually likely won't happen. We'll see. We'll just have to wait and see. And unfortunately, there's no answer on why it takes so long. I mean, these things sort of move slowly in general for anybody because even when people are exonerated, they often are not actually let out of prison immediately, which is, you know, another unfortunate truth. But then we have to go back to our activism to make sure that laws are in place so that when we do find out that people are innocent, that we can get them out of jail quickly and help them To
1: rebuild their lives. Tasha, I just want to thank you. We actually both want to thank you so much for your insight tonight. It has been um, invaluable. And we thank you for just letting us know all of these different things. So, you know, you hear so much on the news and you hear so much on the media, but knowing someone that we, um, who's in our circle and our sphere of influence that we can trust, we can definitely guarantee and say that we know that you are very impartial and will just give us the facts. So thank you so much. Uh, We do want to say that we are praying for Rodney Reed's family. We are praying for Byron Allen, just everyone involved. We understand that law is not an easy thing to do. From the dawn of time, from law to now, it's still not easy. And it's so many moving parts. So we are in prayer. We're thinking about everyone who's involved in these cases.
0: Yes. And for those of you who are trying to wonder how you can Help or how you can be uh, make a difference. Um, the website is freerodneyreed.com, and you can go there. There's a petition. There's also an address where you can, um, there's a clemency, actually a template for our clemency letter, and you can send that to the governor. There's a link where you can contact the DA. So, for those of you who haven't yet, please sign the petition. Also, keep those families, and like Sean said, keep everybody in prayer. But along with our faith, we want to make sure that we are accompanying those with works. And so, please go to the website, please sign the petition call, send letters, um, and stay informed and connected. Thank you once again, Tasha. We appreciate you so much. We thank you for all the information. We definitely have a lot to go back and think about and some ways that we can better be effective in our community. So thank you once again.
2: Thank you all for having me. It's been my pleasure to be here.
0: Wow, that was a lot. I actually, I don't know what I was expecting when we started talking about this, but I was so thankful that she went through all of the facts. And the interesting thing is we didn't even talk about the implications of the families, the community, people involved. Um, I know me personally, having dealt with having a parent who was incarcerated and seeing some of the injustices that were given towards him and some of that bias, um, there's a whole other layer of complications and issues. And like you said, it's not a black and a black and white issue. It's no. very, very gray. Absolutely. And so I'm so thankful that she was able to give an impartial view because there, she said some things that I personally didn't even consider when looking at the case. Cause you know, you when we're looking at it, we're giving specific facts that the media has reported. Right. So I'm just really exactly. thankful that she was able to break down some of those other things that we need to consider because there are some, you know, it's easy to say and point a finger and say, oh, people just didn't do their jobs, but it was not as simple as people didn't do their jobs. So I was very thankful for that. So what would you
1: say concerning a faith-based implication? What are, you, what are your thoughts on that?
0: I think m- the greatest concern for me is that I haven't... I've seen a lot on Facebook about this. I've seen a lot of entertainers talk about this. What I have not seen is faith-based communities and organizations talk about this. And when I mean this, um, meaning some social injustice towards people of color. We've seen it before when, you know, there was Ferguson and with all the issues with cops and shooting, but just across the board you rarely when it comes to situations like this see a public outrage for us and the latest person that i can think of who really um talked who spoke out after the death of atatiana jefferson the one person i can think of on the evangelical scale was beth moore and she was one person who i can think of who was very vocal about as evangelicals and as being a a person who's not of color, um, to really take that time to cross the bridge and think about humanity. It's not just about, okay, yes, we're all believers. And first and foremost, we are Christians, but we are humans and to sit here and act like our different races don't make a difference would be naive. Um, And she was the first person to do that. And she was ostracized and has been ostracized by the evangelical community based on what she has said. So it's concerning to me that for people who claim that all lives matter and that, you know, all souls are important and will say that when it comes to abortion, um, when it comes to things like, us dying, like a black or a brown person or just a minority person, because we're not even going to talk about the whole, the faith-based community and this whole immigration issue. That's just another issue too. When it comes to minorities and social injustices, I feel like the evangelical community becomes very quiet. Um, and that's problematic. If we're talking about, we love Jesus and God says all souls are his. If we believe that, that same notion, then we should be a little more vocal and a little more outraged because of the souls. And I, I, I have yet to see that. I honestly think that that is probably going to have to be another
1: conversation with so many things going on. it's We're going to have to continue this conversation. Um, Simply, we're not going to be able to touch it all in an hour, which is Unfortunate, but also it's great because at least we have the opportunity to put it out here and have people understand that this is really important. I mean, I know we're lipstick, coffee, Jesus, but we're not just about coffee, tea, and lipstick. Like we really care about our community. You spoke about Tatiana Jefferson, and we're also in prayer with her family. Her father, who had to bury his daughter recently a couple weeks ago, he died, I believe, today from a heart attack, and I believe that it could probably only be from a broken heart. And prayer for you know the Jefferson family we're in prayer for the Reed family we're in prayer for the Allen family we come from a church that believes that you know there is power in prayer we are asking all of our listeners whether you're near or far join us in prayer as we really believe God you know, that he's able to make a difference through the prayers that we send up to him. We've been saying at our church that God is with us and this is the year of transformation and our prayers very well can transform the outcome of these cases
0: and not only the outcome of the cases but the outcome of our mind our minds and our hearts because honestly that's where it starts the transformation starts with us that we're better citizens and we're better community people we're better brothers and sisters and mothers and fathers so that yes we want transformation for the situation but we also want transformation for us so that our hearts and minds can love people the way that christ would call us to love them
1: on that note thanks for listening everyone van where can they find us on social
0: media Social media on Facebook at Lifted Coffee Jesus, and we are also on Instagram at Lifted Coffee Jesus Nineteen. Connect with us. We'd love to hear from you. All
1: right, good night, y'all. Good night. See you on the next
0: episode.